Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hi, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome to another week of Real Personal Finance. Real Personal Finance, another week. Special week, multiple questions. Yeah. Multiple answers. Yeah, a little, little mailbag episode. Sometimes we get questions that don't really require a full episode, but you know, we, we definitely want to try to answer all questions that come our way. So thank you for sending them. If you have a question, feel free to submit. You can go to realpersonalfinance.co and submit a question. Um, and if you like the work we're doing and it's helpful for you, please leave a review um, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. And for a lot of you that have submitted questions and say, well, I did submit one when you're going to answer it. We do keep kind of a bank of all questions. And like today's episode, some of these questions came in a little bit ago and they're questions that are shorter. And instead of trying to stretch a short answer out into 15 or 20 minutes of answer, we say, let's wait until we get enough smaller questions on a similar topic and then address them all at once to, to kind of keep it flowing nicely. But we do have all those questions you submitted. So thank you for everyone that's done that. And today, the first question is this. This is from Marta. Marta says, can I max out both my Roth 401k contribution and my Roth IRA contribution in the same year? For example, I'm 57 years old. Can I do 26,000 to my Roth 401k plus 7,000 to my Roth IRA for a total of 33,000? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. The short answer is yes. <laughs> There's nothing um, because I think people hear Roth limits and they say, oh, I can do a Roth IRA and a Roth 401k. It's, yeah. yeah. They are separate limits. So you can do the full 7,000 and the full 26,000 if you're 50 and above. If you're under 50, those limits are 6,000 to the Roth IRA and 19,500 for the 401k for 2021. Yep. But it does depend upon what your income is. So Scott, you want to read us those numbers? Yeah. So, so, and just to be clear for everyone listening, like you can absolutely max out that 401k. Anyway, if you have a 401k through your provider at work, through work, you, you can always do the 19 and a half. Yeah. It doesn't the, matter your With income. the catch up 20, the six and a half grand to get to the 26 that Marta was talking about. Yep. The question is, can we still add that Roth IRA contribution, that extra $7,000 or the 6,000 with the 1,000 catch up is what's happening for Marta. And the question, the, the answer is it depends and it depends on how much income you have um, in the tax year. Yeah. And so, and we don't know if Marta is single or married or a head of household. So we're going to give uh, two different answers. If the income, if, if Marta's married and the income for the household is less than $198,000, you can do both. Yeah. And the income limit specifically, that's for the Roth IRA, right? For we the said Roth IRA. 401k, there's no income limits. You can make $10 million a year and still and max still out do, your 401k. Exactly. But for the Roth IRA, that's the limit. If you go above 198000 you start to hit a sliding scale, which you would just need to use either tax software or talk to your accountant or work with someone who can help you figure this out. But there'd be a sliding scale of how much you could contribute of the 7000 
for the Roth IRA. Once you hit 208,000 of income as joint filers, you no longer get to make that contribution. Got it. So starting at 198,000, you start being phased out. Yes. Of your ability to make that full contribution above 208,000, you're done. That's it. Now, if Marta is single or head of household, um, the same rules apply. It's just the income number goes down. So now the income number that we're measuring for making both those contributions is now $125,000. And then the phase out scales between $125,000 and $140,000. Yes. And that's good to know those numbers too, because let's say, for example, uh, let's say Marta's married and let's say her income is, I don't know, $210,000. And so it's, oh shoot, like I can do the 401k, but I'm, I just missed the ability to do a Roth IRA. Well, if she wanted to switch part of her Roth 401k contribution to a traditional 401k contribution, that drives that number down. Mm-hmm. And say, for example, she put 12000 of her 401k contribution into a traditional well, now all of a sudden her income or her adjusted gross income isn't 210000 it's 198000 Yeah. which means now all of a sudden Marta is eligible for the full Roth IRA contribution. So there's a little bit of a dance that you can do with those numbers to try to make them work out in your favor. But um, there is no, the, the money you put in your IRA does not count against what you can put in your 401k and the money you put in your 401k does not put a or count against what you can put in your IRA. It's your income you need to look at for that. Yep. There's those income limits. And what a great uh, thing that you're bringing up though, is just that every year you can be looking at this as a household in, in lieu of how much do we want to be saving and where are the best places for us to put our income. And that's going to be largely driven on what's our tax rate, what income limits are we bumping into, where can we go put funds and why? Yeah. Yeah. Which all comes back to the build, the plan that you want to build for yourself. Yep. Absolutely. Um, cool. Thank you for that question, Marta. Yeah. Next question, and this is this is from James. Oh, James, are you submitting? Me. Are you submitting your questions yeah, this, for this, us? This is me. I wanted to see That's your awesome. take, Scott. Uh, and this is from another James. And other James says, "Hey guys, great podcast. Thank you very much. You've talked about saving versus investing based upon time horizon and risk appetite. I'm hoping you can talk more about saving options. I heard about the concept of CD ladders and thought it may be a good approach to earmark, earmark my annual property taxes and insurance bills." All right. All right. Um, My first, where I go right away is I just think immediately like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And let's talk about what a CD ladder is just in <laughs> yeah. case someone's not. Yeah, that's a good, thank you for familiar. the reminder. Yeah, what's a CD? And first of all, uh, a CD is a certificate of deposit. Yeah. And what it is, is you go to your bank and you say, what are your CD rates? What are your certificate of deposit rates? And they say, hey, James, we'll pay you. 1% interest if you give us your money, tie it up for a year or whatever it is. And at the end of that year or that term, my interest is credited and I can take that money and do what I want with it. Yeah. If at any point before that term is up, I take my money out, typically I lose all the interest that I would have accrued right. on that account. So it is a way of getting a little bit more money on your money than you would in a simple checking or even savings account. Yep. But in the past, CD ladders used to be a pretty good way of doing exactly what James is talking about here in the question. Yes. When interest rates were four, five, six, seven percent, right. you could get a decent amount of interest on your money. Yep. You mentioned, though, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And why is that? Yeah, because when you look at what you can get for just a high yield savings account at you know, an online lender, you know, whether it's like a Capital One or an Ally Bank or Marcus or whatever the litany of, of online banks are. Um, what you can get just by having it in the high yield savings account versus having a CD where you have that lockup, mm-hmm. um, the differential is so small, it's probably not worth putting it into the CDs. Yeah. 
But he is pointing to one thing that I, I love the idea of. So I think it's worth noting. Um, he's saying, hey, I have these lumpy expenses that I want to be saving for. Mm-hmm. Should I go put this somewhere so that it can get that bill gets paid? And mm-hmm. can I earn a little bit of money on it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And sadly, not a lot, but yep. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I love the approach James is talking about, not because the interest rate is going to be great, but just for that mental accounting of yes, income exactly. is coming in. And what happens is we think about our life on a monthly basis of, okay, how much do I need to pay for in groceries this month or mortgage in this month mm-hmm. or uh, utilities in this month? And that's kind of how our mind thinks. And what it's not thinking of is, well, what about property taxes? Right. Well, maybe I pay those a couple times per year, but I almost have to average out what that cost is going to be. So on a monthly basis, I can put enough money away. Right. So if property taxes are $3,000 two times a year, so 6000 total, maybe I want to open a separate account and save $500 per month just so that I'm not hit hard in two months of the year with, oh my gosh, where does this 3000 come from? Exactly. Let me spread it out. Because the, the one thing that happens is if the money's in the account, it's so easy to spend and you mm-hmm. just don't think about it. It happens all the time. This is a conversation that is perennial when yeah. you talk about cash flow with clients. It's just that if the money's there, it just, it just finds a way to turn into vapor. Yeah. Uh, and then that six grand when you need it isn't there. So love this idea, James. Carry it on. Um, sounds like I, we, we feel high yield savings account may be uh, a better option. Although there may be some amazing CDs, promotional CDs out there that might be worth checking out. If you find something like that, go for it. Just, you know. Yeah. And, and as interest rates increase, maybe our answer changes to this. But the, the, the reason for this is interest rates are so low and that differential between high yield savings accounts and CDs is so small at this point. It just doesn't make sense to tie your money up when you could get a much more flexible account uh, without any limitations of CDS. Absolutely. All right. Um, why don't you read the next question? Sure. i all the questions here. Yes. Thanks. Thanks yeah, for this one's yours. giving me an opportunity. Okay. So next comes from Paul. Uh, Paul says, I'm looking for advice regarding where to invest for a down payment for our first home. My goal is to be able to make an offer in about five years. Background on me, in my late 30s, debt-free, married with one child, and work at a decent-paying corporate job. I continue to max out 401k and divert all other income to the down payment, 20 to 30% after-tax income. My specific question is whether it makes sense to put it into savings in a relatively liquid real estate investment like a REIT. In other words, an investment that might track the cost of future purchase I plan to make. If the housing market rises, so too will my investment, and I'll be better positioned to make the higher down payment. As the housing market tanks, uh, the investment will look bad, but in theory, I won't need as much money for a given house. Yeah, I, I like the thought process behind this. Yeah. Of is there a way to hedge uh, my savings to the prices of homes, mm-hmm. or at least tie my savings to the prices of homes? And we'll talk about that answer directly and then also look at some other factors that I think we'd consider, you know, advising in this type of a situation. Yeah. To start with, though, let's answer the question directly. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a study done and there's an index that tracks the housing or uh, the increase or decrease in the price of homes across the country. It's called the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. 
it's kind of like the S&P 500 index mm-hmm. that tracks the performance of the biggest stocks in the country. Yeah. So it kind of applied that principle to housing prices. And in a study from 1989 to 2013, it showed that REITs do have a very strong positive correlation uh, with that index. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, Paul, your, your question, does it make sense? Does this in a way tie, if I invest in a REIT, does that somewhat kind of benchmark my money to what housing prices are doing? The answer is yes. Now, that being said, um, there is a difference here. It's, it's almost like, and I'm, maybe this is a bad way of thinking about it, but it's, it's, think of it like this. Like, let's say I wanted to buy, I don't know, $50,000 worth of McDonald's stock in five years. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, is a good way of doing that. I need to save up five years. Like Paul needs to save five years for it to buy a home. Right. Should I invest in the S&P 500 each year as I'm saving that in order to be able to purchase McDonald's stock uh, five years from now? That's a weird example, but the way I'm thinking about this is the S&P 500 is going to track a lot of companies like McDonald's, but that being said, McDonald's isn't necessarily tied to the S&P 500. Right. There's still going to be a lot of deviation there. Yeah. So, is this a good way of doing it? Um, there is a strong correlation between REITs as a whole and housing prices as a whole, but depending on where you're going to buy that house, you know what part of the country, what that market is doing... In the same way, an individual stock isn't going to perform the exact same as an index, neither is the individual price of a home going to perform the exact same as that index. Yep. But there is some correlation there. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, it's, it's broad core. Yeah. Broad exposure as you're explaining the mark, the index versus the individual. That, that makes sense. I mean, to me, uh, if it was me and Paul's shoes, I get his the the first leap of going like, hey, maybe I should get read exposure because I want to buy a house in the future. Um, I, I understand the line of 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 thought there, mm-hmm. but I also just want to caution that, uh, and more so just have, with the understanding of of what markets can do in short time frames. And I think five years is still a short time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just want to be careful that you and he even alluded to it. If it went down, it'd be bad, but it'd be maybe it'd be okay. You want to be you want to be understanding of that because the 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 dollars that you're looking to go put down you're looking to put a down payment on a house down and here's <laughs> so two two ways to think of that one is if you keep these funds fairly stable and safe and the market goes down you actually have your down payment faster right does that make sense oh yeah because you if need I less need twenty percent down on a million dollars I need two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. But if I need 100% down, I mean, 20% down on like $800,000, well, now I need a whole lot less. Yeah. Right? 160, 40,000 less. Mm-hmm. So if I keep it stable and safe, mm-hmm. if I let it go grow with the markets, yes, I can get the upside, but I also have to be willing to accept that downside. And in some cases, that could not, <laughs> if we have a spouse who really wants to get into the house too, and they're not on board with this plan and you yeah. have that downside now you have to wait longer to get into the house that may not work out well for you either yeah and you pulled some numbers before uh before we started recording just to give some some real examples of this yeah so we actually i just pulled the the um dow jones um us reit um fund just to get a sense of well what were the you know best and worst returns as as uh over recent data which i you know is 20 some years or more. Um, and the the biggest one-year return was up 113% for that REIT. 
which wow. was coming off of the the 2000 you know 2008 crash in March of 09 the worst drawdown but right before that was down 60% right so losing 60% of your asset would be really hard in in Interrupting real quick. Keep in mind, people look at those numbers and say, well, the upside sounds a whole lot better than the downside. Yeah. But if you're down 60% and then you increase 113%, you still haven't yeah, actually broken you, even yet. Not, so looking at compounding it. there. Yeah. Um, so it looks like the upside is way better, but it's it's not when you factor in mm-hmm. what you have to what hole you have to dig yourself out of. Yeah. And then as you take it out a touch further, three year, the best performance was off of those, those 09 lows as well as up 44% annualized, which is great. The downside again, right before that was down 27% over three years annualized, which is a really big down number. Um, and then the, the five year number was down, was plus 30 uh, to the positive side or down nine and a half to the negative. So, so you just, you just have to, that's pretty risky. Um, yeah. Just, just looking at it, you know, straight face. Yeah. And again, this, these numbers are, I don't say they're misleading. You, you mentioned these are annualized numbers. So five yeah. years, that's the exact time horizon that, that Paul was asking about. If you compound at 30% for five years, that's a, that's a really significantly large amount of money you've, you've grown. Yeah, it's huge. But if we're looking at the risk of this, to be down 9.5% annualized over five years doesn't mean a total downturn of 9.5%. That's probably down close to what 40, 45% on an annualized basis over five years. Uh, you know, so like say, Paul, you invested a hundred thousand dollars today. I'm just using a nice round number for easy math. Yeah, down 40 grand. That's 60 grand after five years. Right. If you lose 9.5% right. per year. Right. Now, if you have a longer time horizon and if you stretch that to 10 years, the, the best case scenario is you compounded at a positive 21% growth rate per year. The worst case scenario is now positive. The worst case scenario, you compounded at 3.5% per year for 10 years, which is a nice return. Right. Now, this is just looking at data that's already happened. Anything different could happen in the future. But what it goes to show is that in any short period of time, the range of outcomes is extremely broad. Yes. You could be down 60%. You could be up over 110%. Mm-hmm. The longer you have, the more your range of outcomes starts to narrow, but it doesn't really start to narrow significantly enough to, to be able to expect a positive outcome for several years. And so that's just something that you have to be comfortable with. To Paul's point, if his investment is going down, well, maybe the housing market is too. So yeah. it's it's you don't need as much for that down payment. But also keep in mind, if your investment's going down and the housing market is, there's probably a recession. There may be job losses. There may be other hardships that are also uh, happening at that time. So there's all these different factors that are going to be coming into play here. But looking at your time horizon is certainly absolutely the most important. To me, whenever we're looking at shorter time horizons like this, I always start with like, <laughs> you can start with the extremes in a sense, right? Like, just as much as you, she's just asking about specific read exposure, but you could just as easily say like, well, let's just go invest it all in stocks. And when I have the down payment, I'll take it. Right. So then mm-hmm. if you look at just, well, what's the after tax return of the, of yeah. that to, to be able to do it. Or you could just say, let's keep it all in cash. And then there's all these spaces in between where you can put different amounts in, you know, cash and different amounts in bonds and different amounts of stocks. And the key is to find what's the right plan for you yeah. in that specific instance. And then also ask like, what of what we have saved today? How do we deploy it quickly? Do we do, we've done episodes on this. Do we invest in a lump sum, which 
history tells us is typically, you know, the evidence shows is typically the right way to go mm-hmm. uh, for most in most instances, or do you dollar cost average in? So it's like, how are you going to build an allocation for this home purchase, whether it's being 100% cash or investing in, in a, a funds or some type of fund, 100% or anything in between? And then how are you going to deploy every new dollar amount that comes in? Yeah. And that's the key. That's what we want to figure out. That's what Paul wants to figure out. Yeah. So I, th- I think a few factors to look at as we're talking about is, is time horizon is a big one. Yep. Um, how long do you have until this happens? Which we have about five years. Uh, ability to save is a big one. You know, if Paul said, you know what, I, I can't save anything here and I really want to buy a home, but I don't nearly have enough for down payment. You kind of need either you need to set different expectations and buy a smaller home. Yeah. Or you need your money to grow for you to be able to have that down payment. Yep. Um, Which I think he was saying he's saving 20 to 30% of after-tax income. And in Paul's great. case, he's saving a lot for this. To yeah. me, and this isn't a scientific thought, this is more just kind of looking at this from a number of different perspectives. The more you can save, the more, in my opinion, I feel comfortable with someone being aggressive with their investments. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a downturn and you can save a significant amount, well, the, the amount that it's setting you back on the downturn could maybe be made up with a couple months or three months of additional savings. Yeah. So and your dollar cost averaging across the the swing anyway. And your so dollar cost averaging. Period, it's going to help you reduce volatility pretty dramatically. Exactly. Versus a person who's investing one amount one time and then waiting for that to grow into their down payment amount, they don't have that same flexibility if the market drops to be able to save their way out of a downturn. They just have to wait their way out of the downturn yeah. for that money to recover. And just dollar cost averaging, just to remind people at home, it basically just means like if I get, if I go put money in uh, to a specific account and buy specific funds once a month or once every week versus I have one big time to go put it to work, when I put it to work doesn't matter nearly as much. Yeah. Um, we, we typically see that just putting money to work for long periods of time in the future, it's always best to invest today. But if we can, if we're investing for shorter time cycles, um, and you're putting money in on a fairly regular basis and building an asset, dollar cost averaging can help you reduce volatility, um, which can help out with returns in the long run. Yes. Yeah, totally. And then the last last thing that I would add to all this is flexibility. It's probable, whether Paul's investing for one year or two years or three years or five years, he's probably going to make money in each of those cases. Yeah. The, the, the odds are in his favor. So... What we're not saying, we're not saying that it's not likely that you're going to make money. We're saying that there's always the risk that you don't over any of these periods. And that risk diminishes the longer that you have. But if you have a lot of flexibility, like he said, he wants to buy a home in five years. If he said, yeah, five years, I have to buy a home for whatever reason. Like it, it, There's a line in the sand and I'm buying a home in five years. You probably want to be a little bit more conservative with this because you can't afford a major downturn to get in the way of that time horizon. But if it's more like I have five years, but you know what? If it's six or seven, it's not that big of a deal. Just whenever mm-hmm. it makes sense, the more he could afford to take some risk with that money, because if there happens to be a downturn, do you have a few months or a year or two year to wait out until that recovers and becomes a really good investment again? Yeah. So a whole bunch of factors that we'd want to consider. But going back to Paul's specific question, yes, the re is going to be fairly pretty strongly cor- correlated to housing prices as a whole that the risk in that or the the, the nuance to that is you're looking at one specific home and one specific home may or may not be tracking home prices as a whole across the country mm. depending on geography and neighborhood and a whole bunch of different factors so we want to take it deeper and look at what is your time horizon your ability to save the flexibility you have 
and some of the other factors we're looking at. Yeah. And then just to understand the amount of risk you're willing to bear is the, is the number one driver to, any, to determining where you should put assets. And then whether you put assets direct to try to directly correlate or to try to get a rate of return to get you the home purchase, that's something that you need to come up with as well. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Anything else you add? No. Thank you for the questions, though. Please keep them coming. Keep them coming, and we'll see you all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.